Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Paul Attaway, author of the novel Blood in the Low Country. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your debut novel, Blood in the Low Country, how would you describe the novel? Uh, Southern family drama, suspense thriller, murder mystery. I know that's too many genres shoved into one, but uh, it does take place in Charleston, South Carolina in the 1970s, so it's based in the South. It, it does involve a family and uh, the traumatic experiences they live through when a murder turns their world upside down. And there is a bit of mystery as to who the real killer is. So I guess it is a shock draw. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Blood in the Low Country? Yes. When I, I decided to, I'm, you know, I'm 58 years old, had a full professional career before finding myself as an author. So when I set out to write a book, now, I read a lot of books about how to write a book, and some of the advice that seemed to uh, you know, recur again and again was, you know, write what you know. So in focusing on that, I thought that I would be able to write a story about you know, father-son relationships. So I set, a, I set out to write a story about a father and a son, or actually in this case, two sons, and that was the original genesis of the idea. And then from there, the story grew and grew as I developed, you know, who the bad guy was, what the conflict was, what the themes were. Uh, but it originally started out as a story about a father and a son. Well, what was your writing journey? You, you said that this is your debut novel and that you had a full professional career. What, what was the journey that, that led you to deciding that you wanted to write and, and write this novel? Had you written before? Yeah. And the answer to that question is I've always, I say always, always is a long time, but I've always written. I was a lawyer for two years. You know, it didn't stick with me, but in law school, I joked that I learned to read and write in law school. Um, I was on the law review and, and uh, I would turn in, you know, 10, 15 page submission for an article. And my mentor, by the time we were finished, would keep having it back and we have it down to five pages. So I, I learned to write. Then I, after that, I entered into the business world and I started a few businesses along the way and all small businesses. So I, I had to write everything from, you know, uh, you know Disclosure memorandums for security offerings, instruction manuals for products, marketing material, PR material, uh, all the website information. So I did most of the writing and I valued people's time. So I always tried to strip everything down to a page or, you know, when possible, some documents demand more. But I'd always written and I'd always enjoyed the writing process. It was it was part of my job that I, I really took pride in, and that would be, you know, say what you mean and mean what you say, uh, and do it in as few words as possible to convey the meaning. So, I, yes, when I when I came around to writing a book, it wasn't as if I hadn't written since you know college. So, but I I was um, a burned out businessman that started and sold several businesses. Um, youngest child went off to college. I was too young to retire, but too old and burned out to start any more businesses. And if you've 
you've owned your own business for a few years, that basically disqualifies you from ever working for anybody else because you make a lousy employee. So I, I tried consulting for a while and it wasn't all that satisfying. Um, I would finish a book from time to time and I'd say, wow, what a great book. Or I'd finish a book and I'd go, eh, that wasn't so good. I could do better. And uh, I think my wife got a little sick and tired of hearing me say that. So when, one day she said, you know, you, you've been talking this way. Why don't you either, you know, shut up or do it? So I took that as a challenge and I said, I'm going to write a book. And I was still consulting at the time, finishing up my last consulting project. So it, it took me longer than I like to think it would have. But um, I sat down to do it. And once I you know, got into it and then learned all there was, all there is one needs to know, I just fell in love with it. So I finished the first book and I'm on to book two. And so what... What was the writing process? What did it end up being for you? Did you outline the novel extensively or did you just dive into the narrative and see where it led you? You know, I just dove in. Um, and I, I, we were, um, one of our children, we were living in Phoenix at the time. One of our children attended college at Coast in South Carolina. So we saw a lot of the city visiting her and, and that's now where we live. But they have a wonderful library there right on King Street, the Charleston Library Society. And our house was just a few blocks away. So, you know, I had been preparing to start the book. I'd been taking legal pad after legal pad of notes about characters and this and that. And so I, I show up at the library, sit down, you know, plug in my laptop and I'm prepared to start writing. And after, you know, 15, 20 minutes, I'm still staring at a blank page and I'm just about as you know, uh, being off as I could be, I had no idea what to do. So, um, just by happenstance, we then introduced to another couple who had retired to Charleston and we were having dinner with them one night that first week. I'm there trying to write the book and he had been a film editor. He was about 10 years, 15 years older than me. And so he, he had fully retired. And so he starts asking me about my book and I, I struggled to even explain what I was trying to do. And he gave me the best single piece of advice I ever received. And he said, just write. Don't try to write a book from beginning to end. Just write and stitch it together later. So I went back to the library the next day and I, I, I just turned on the laptop. I didn't open any notes and I just started to write. And it happened. I, I wrote what was and still is the first scene, the first chapter of the book. And ever since, whenever I get stuck, I go back to just write. And the first paragraph or two I write may, you know, might get thrown away, but it gets the brain working. It gets the juices flowing. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden an idea pops in. So I definitely was a pantser right out of the gate. And then as, as the process began to unfold, I began to be a bit more of a player where I might be able to see um, a few scenes ahead. And then I could enter into a chapter and say the following things need to happen in order for me to get the story from point A to point B. And I'm, I'm working on book two and I, I'm finding that I'm, I'm planning book two more than I plan book one, but I'm not a, a detailed outliner, picture, conceptual thinker. And so I, I have 
storylines and I know that the story needs to evolve and move from here to there. And, but I, I still rely upon that advice just right and stitch them together later. And I guess the stitching is the editing process, but that's sure. how I got started. And I'm curious, you, you self-published your novel. What has that experience been like? Fascinating and frustrating. <laughs> um, and it, and it was, again, um, I did not know when I did not know. And so I finished the manuscript and, and you know, went online, you know, Google searches, found an editor, uh, went through that process and, and then, you know, I'm Googling you know, how to get published. And so I learned how to write a query list. I go down that path and I, I research and I find, um, agents that can help me find a, a publisher. And while I'm doing that, I, I you know, I, I, I picked up along the way that you need to be patient and they may or may not ever get back to you. And, you know, I sent out some two dozen query letters, which isn't very many, frankly, from what I've come to understand. A lot of people will send out query letters for over a year until they find an, an agent. But then I began to approach um, smaller publishers that would accept a manuscript directly from an author without an agent. Same process. I go through a research, I find the, the publishers and I had more success there, but most of them either A, wanted to make a lot of changes to the story, or um, they were going to take a great deal of time, I felt. So I, I passed on one or two opportunities with a small publisher, and I entered into the world of, of self-publishing. And there are a host of companies out there that are, you know, A to Z, that will take you through the entire process. And um, I went down a road with one of those. I didn't get very far. The uh, initial cover design I got back from the company just really didn't connect with me. And I, I think, frankly, it was my fault. I must not have done a very good job describing the book to them. But in the process of all this, I landed upon a consultant, a woman with 30-plus years' experience in the publishing industry. And, and one of the things I liked about her was, you know, uh, she knew her limitations. She says, well, I don't know about that, but I can introduce you to so-and-so. So she introduces me to a wonderful cover designer and then to another person who helped with the back-end operations, getting my files uploaded to Amazon, et cetera. So I ended up piecing together a, a team of folks that are very good at what they do. And they helped me with the cover design and arriving at a title um, and, you know, um, putting together the bug, putting together a launch date, um, finding people to do initial book reviews, et cetera. So we basically pieced together a team. And so I was able to publish the book. That's great. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, that's good. Um, uh, the Storied Life of A.J. Pickery. I just finished that one a week or two ago. And my wife is taking us to the bookstore. And it's a great book. And it's about a, uh, an independent bookstore on a small island. You kind of get the sense it could be a Martha Spinner type island. And uh, it, it's a delightful book. I really enjoyed it. Um, what else? Also, um, I'm right now I'm reading, um, I'm going back in time. I'm reading Greg Isles, Natchez Burning. And this book, Good Christmas published a while ago, I believe, sure. but I, mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying that. I hadn't read any of it. And 
So I was in a bookstore again and I picked it up and I thought, so I'm, 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 I think I started this one yesterday. So I'm only about 80 pages into it, but it's very good. I think my favorite book last, you know, last year was uh, A Gentleman in Moscow. And so I, I read uh, Rules of Civility earlier this year. I really enjoyed uh, Eddie Mark Cole's book. So I'm doing a lot of research for books too. And that, of course, cuts down to, to your own reading. Sure. Um, but I try to go back and forth between something current and something old. And now that I'm living in Charleston, I'm, I'm trying to become reacquainted with, with Southern writers. And um, Larry Brown is a writer from Mississippi. He wrote a great book called Father and Son. Um, he passed away probably, oh goodness, maybe 25 years ago. But a good example of some Southern Gothic literature. So um, try to mix that up with the, you know, the current uh, authors of the day. Sure. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are listening, who are working on their own stories and novels? Um, well, I, I, you know, the, the advice that worked for me might work for others. And that is uh, just write and stitch it together and stitch it together later. I, I really you know, I, when I came from my business career, I joked that I could walk to my desk, I could look at the things that needed to be done, and I could quickly size it up. I'd go, okay, that's a 10-minute phone call. That that letter's going to take me five minutes, right? That one's going to take me half hour. I could look at my day and basically plan, by and large, when I needed to get done, how long it would get done, and when I could get done. And that was pretty comforting. So I sat down to write a book. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure James Patterson can tell you how long it takes him to write a book, but <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take me to write a book. So it, it takes a tremendous amount of um, patience for when, when you're used to, a, you know, kicking off tasks and goals or used to accomplishing things in an, in an understood manner. And then you jump into something like writing a book where you don't know where the ending is. You, you really, for me, I, I, um, I like the advice. I don't know who gave it first. It might have been Hemingway. You know, words on a page. So I, I strive for 1,500 words, plus or minus a day. And that gives me some sense of accomplishment that I'm moving the ball forward. But um, uh, I, at least for me, trying to write a book from chapter one sequentially all the way to the end Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Um, was a huge barrier and burden. And now I write, and I know I, like yesterday, I know I wrote a scene that I think is a pretty good scene, but I don't necessarily know where that scene's going to go. So I, when I sat out, sat down to write the first book, I said, I want to hopefully write a compelling story and write it in a compelling way. And a lot of that comes down to determining, you know, what are the readers going to know? Now, what are the characters going to know? Are they all going to know the same thing at the same time? And is there a, an interesting way that you can 
tell a story or, you know, there's more than one way to tell a story. So oftentimes you know, the, the phrase that I picked up was, you know, story engineering. So I know that when I write a scene, I'm revealing something to the reader and, and maybe I need to move that scene about, uh, around just a bit. So just write and stitch it together later is, is the only real advice that I could pass on. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your debut novel? Well, um, allattaway.com will get you right to my website. And then from there, you can read a little bit more about me. I've written a couple of short stories. I've done a little blogging. Um, and then there are links to where the book can be purchased. Um, of course, I'm available, you know, Amazon and, and all the other online platforms. It's also available in audiobook. But I also link to about a half a dozen independent bookstores that carry the book. So if you're living in the Charleston area or in, or in uh, Pauly's Island in Savannah, there are a few bookstores uh, that are carrying the book. And I continue to go door to door introducing myself to bookstores in the hopes that um, they'll, they'll pick the book up. But I would suggest, you know, paulattaway.com. Uh, my Facebook page is author Paul Attaway. And Instagram account is author Paul Attaway. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Paul Attaway, author of the novel Blood in the Low Country. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Paul, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of the novel Blood in the Low Country by Paul Attaway. Narrated by Adam Barr. Chapter 1. Second Place. Again. Kiowa Island, South Carolina. October 1977. The crisp morning sunlight pierced the amber mist that blanketed the horizon like a gentle cotton shawl. Gone was the haze that accompanied the oppressive heat of a low-country summer replaced by the cool fragrance of damp salt air dancing off the marsh. Walker, kneeling to retie his shoes, spied his father in the distance. Why did he have to come? Walker thought. He said he was going to play golf. But there he was, shaking hands with Eddie's dad. Walker fed off his father's approval, but it came at a steep price. His father never hesitated to tell him he loved him, but it was always in the same breath in which he told him how proud he was of him. Were the two thoughts severable? Could he love him if he weren't proud of him? If Walker didn't perform? If he didn't win? The pressure. The pressure to succeed weighed on every moment of every day, and the cost of losing far surpassed the joy of winning. And then there was Eli, always Eli. Eli was counting on him. Walker looked about, sizing up the competition. The Kiowa challenge was the first cross-country meet of the season and a chance to gauge the strength of the other teams. Bishop High School always fielded a strong squad, but he'd beaten their best last year, and he knew he'd beat them again this year. But the runners from the other schools were never his primary concern. No, the runner who stood between Walker and meddling first was, and always had been, Eddie Wentworth. 
Edward Theodore Wentworth. Walker didn't hate Eddie. No one did. If there was a word that described Eddie, it was effortless. Everything came naturally for him. He shot up in height earlier than most of the boys in class, but then filled out quickly, thus avoiding the awkward years. His voice changed seemingly overnight. His blonde hair, made more so by the hours he spent in the sun, was unkept, but naturally so. The only physical feature not preordained by the gods were his eyes. One was blue and one was green, but the effect made him all the more memorable. But at the end of the day, what stood Eddie apart from the others was the grace with which he carried himself, seemingly unaware that others always noticed him. Walker didn't dislike Eddie. Everyone liked Eddie. But resent? Yes. Looked down on? Yes. But why? Jealousy. It all came so easily for Eddie. Walker worked for his accomplishments. How could his successes not be more significant, more meaningful, more deserving? This year would be different. He had trained harder than ever before. This year, Walker would not be defeated. This year, Walker would beat Eddie. Walker would make Eli proud. His father, too. The race would begin at the end of a dirt road on a thin finger of land bordered by the Kiowa River to the north and marshland to the south. The road extended westward and connected to the Kiowa Island mainland. Kiowa is a barrier island off the coast of South Carolina and was so named for the Kiowa Indians, who had populated the island by explorers and fortune hunters dispatched in 1670 by England's King Charles II. The marshal fired the gun, and the boys were off. Walker was not a fast starter, but with three miles ahead of them, and across a gently rolling, predominantly flat terrain, a quick start was not necessary. The runners jockeyed for position over the first few hundred yards before settling into a pace. The boys ran down the dirt road, the sun rising over their shoulders. Walker knew the course well. His family had rented the same beach house every summer, and there wasn't a corner of the island nor a stretch of beach he had not explored. As the course turned south, the sights and sounds changed. The smell of the pungent salt air dissipated, and the marsh, populated by blue herons and long-legged great egrets, was replaced by live oaks and the occasional deer. Kiowa Island was a magnificent living testimony to the majesty and diversity of God's creation. Rivers, marshland, tidal pools, the ocean, a maritime forest, and the accompanying ecosystem of each habitat formed a veritable Garden of Eden created by millions of years of shifting tides. Walker's father said that the island, along with baseball and shrimp and grits, was more proof God loved us. Walker ran comfortably toward the front of the pack. A mile into the race, the runners began to separate. A half-dozen runners were ahead of Walker, none of them Eddie. He didn't look back. He didn't have to. He knew Eddie was there, always in striking distance. Walker waited patiently until the race turned westward. They were on the coolest part of the course, shaded by trees, 
and due to an early morning overcast sky, the temperature had been in the low 60s when the race began. The dirt road softened as it left the forest and rolled up to the edge of the beach on the south side of the island. And Walker knew the combination of the sun breaking through and the soft sand would slow the pace. For now, though, the cooler temperatures lulled the front runners into too quick of a pace. Walker was content to wait. So was Eddie. The dirt roads were not built for cars and in some areas of the island were barely wide enough for two-lane traffic. Efforts to develop the island had begun in the 1950s but proceeded haphazardly over the years. Most of the development occurred on the Atlantic-facing south side of the island, where homes could be found on Eugenia Avenue, the island's main road. He spent his summers following Eli and his friends around the island, fishing, crabbing, sailing, and reenacting battles between the pirate Blackbeard and the English Royal Navy. Walker idolized his older brother, and Eli, despite his open complaints, loved having him along. Preparing for his move, Walker stayed back as the pack of frontrunners sped out of the cover of the oak trees and turned westward onto the beach. As they turned, coming from behind, he shot down to the water's edge, knowing the sand would be harder and therefore easier and faster to run across. He had checked the tide the day before and knew it would be at its lowest in the morning, leaving the beach surface hard and compact closer to the surf. Walker grabbed the lead before the other boys, slogging away in the heavier sand, could comprehend what had happened. They ran toward the harder-packed sand to catch Walker, but it was too late. Walker knew he would not merely hold his lead, but increase it and win the race running away. A well-conceived plan. A well-executed race. But over his shoulder, he caught sight of Eddie, still running along the edge of the forest. Walker couldn't understand it. Everyone else had fallen in behind him. Then it made sense. The wind. It had picked up, and before he knew it, he was running into a severe headwind. Eddie, however, running along the edge of the forest, was shielded from the wind and ran unhindered. Out of nowhere, the wind became the biggest factor in the race. Eddie held back from the front of the pack and waited patiently for the story of the race to unfold. As the course reached the end of the forest trail, Eddie saw the clouds moving more quickly across the sky and a flock of seagulls rise and bank upwards on the shoulder of a strong eastward-blowing wind. So, seeking shelter from the wind, he shortened his stride and stuck to the heavier sand. Walker reached Eugenia Avenue first, but the stretch on the beach had taken it out of him. It looked like Eddie, close on his heels, was running easily as Walker labored to hold his pace. With only a few hundred yards to go, the race would finish in the parking lot of the Cougar Point golf course. Walker's legs burned as he struggled to hold the lead. Eddie pulled even, his gait long and relaxed. Walker pushed himself harder and stayed with him as Eddie sped up ever so slightly. But Walker's legs felt heavy and lifeless. He had nothing left and his shoulders ached. Eddie eased across the finish line with Walker lunging behind him, falling just short.
as the other runners crossed the finish line and huddled, hands on their knees, with teammates. Congratulations were handed out to all who had finished. Walker was stunned. Not broken, but demoralized. Not sure what more he could have done. And their dad was again. But this time with his arms crossed and his lips pursed. Standing off to himself. I've embarrassed him, thought Walker. Monty left quickly and trudged off to his car with just enough time to make it to the first tee. He was at a loss for what to say to his son. He hurt for Walker every time he fell short, knowing how hard his son trained. But Monty was pulled between his desire to counsel and yet encourage his son, and his duty to stand by his wife, Walker's mother, who relentlessly pressured Walker to excel. Monty felt she pushed him too hard, but when he spoke up, she accused him of taking sides against her. Monty wished he knew what to do and say, and not knowing, the silence defined his relationship with his son Walker. The resulting tension had opened a gulf between father and son, and Monty feared losing Walker too. Walker could barely focus on what was happening around him. A small crowd of runners, family members, coaches, and a few girlfriends gathered at the far end of the parking lot. Still, in the fog of his exhausted, oxygen-deprived brain, he made out the words of the race marshal. And taking second place, Walker Atkins from Porta God. Second place. Again. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.